Hello, my name is Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, a revolutionary socialist podcast. We record the podcast on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, very excited tonight to be um, joined by two comrades who work in healthcare. Um, not very excited about the situation we currently find ourselves in, but to have a decent analysis of what's going on in healthcare right now, particularly um, we're here in Melbourne, me and Liam and Cecilia and Eric is very close to Melbourne, um, to be living in this stage four lockdown situation that we're now in and will be in for the foreseeable future, um, that people have a lot of questions about the state of the healthcare system in Australia and in Victoria. So we want to really get to the heart of that. And I think as we go through um, this discussion tonight, it's really a massive indictment of the whole system of capitalism and profit-making that we live in. And it's not just an Australian um, question, it's an international question of which comes first, people or profit, basically. So if you want to support the work that we do, not for profit, on Red Flag Radio, the podcast, you can do that on Patreon. And the thing to look up there is Red Flag Radio Podcast on patreon.com. And thank you to everyone who supports us. We had a new person sign up today. We really appreciate that. Um, and it does help us kind of keep uh, the podcast uh, chugging along and improving and expanding as much as possible into new areas and meeting new people. Cecilia is a health worker um, who works in allied health in the public hospital system here in Victoria. And Eric is a registered nurse uh, employed in Melbourne. And I wanted to start with you, Eric, today um, with just a sort of overview of how you see the healthcare system as it currently stands. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the healthcare system has been basically underfunded by consecutive governments, Labor and Liberal, for, well, a really long time now, um, decades really. Um, and we're kind of left with a system that is constantly being run at overcapacity. So um, in the hospitals that I work in, I do um, elective surgery. Um, I work in that area and we're constantly running overcapacity. We're constantly behind, um, constantly catching up. And that's kind of become the norm for the hospital system, I think, not only in Victoria, but across Australia. So, you know, for this pandemic to suddenly come and hit the hospital system, there's already no slack in the system to actually support a pandemic. There's barely enough to actually keep normal operations going on a good day. That's the state of the healthcare system um, in Australia today. And so, you know, that's that's something that's been the case for a long time, but it's only just been getting worse and worse and worse. So this pandemic just lays that, this whole situation on top of an already dire situation. And it's really, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, 
we're in a situation where the healthcare system in Victoria is having to cancel all of these elective surgeries just to be able to free up staff. Like we're talking about um, just the sheer number of staff that are being uh, called in sick or isolated are requiring that all of these elective surgeries that are actually quite necessary surgeries um, are being cancelled all across Victoria. There was no slack to begin with, and I think the um, pandemic has just exacerbated that. Can I get you to just say something about elective surgery? Because I think it's a common misapprehension that people have that it's sort of some kind of optional thing because of the word elective, but these are pretty serious things that people are having surgery for, like cancer treatments and things like that, right? Yeah, and a whole lot of things like I work at um, Peter Mac and, you know, there's a whole lot of diagnostic procedures like colonoscopies, um, things that basically will find out if people have cancer so that they can be treated further down the track. A lot of these things are being cancelled. And, I mean, in a lot of cases, people were waiting way too long before the pandemic. They were waiting months. They were waiting like three, six months in the orthopedic system. So talking about hip replacements, knee replacements, this sort of thing, people are waiting six months more to have these kinds of operations that mean that they can just be mobile and just go about their daily lives, basically to be able to move around. Um, so these are the kinds of things that are considered to be elective surgeries, um, things that will mean that people don't get an untreatable cancer in the future and also things that allow people to not be basically disabled. Um, th there's, so many, there's so many people that are going to be suffering because of the uh, cancelling of elective surgeries. That's something that's really not being talked about much in the media. They talk about it, like you said, like it's just this thing that we can just do without. But elective surgery is massively important um, to a lot of people, a lot of people's livability, mm. really. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's like if you ha pictured a kind of metaphor of a already extremely congested highway and then you just block it entirely and then you've got this pileup of traffic down the road that is – you know, that it's never going to kind of get through and it's not traffic, it's people being able to live their lives. Like, And there's, you know, so it's not just the COVID cases that we're talking about in the healthcare system, it, it's all the rest of it. And we'll come on to talk a bit more about um, some of that. But I think one of the most shocking things, especially at the beginning of the pandemic in Australia, and one of the questions that people had about the whole mask wearing issue around was the government going to tell people to wear masks or not was really the um, the suspicion that the amount of PPE available for people working in healthcare was just not there and therefore if you told people other people to start wearing masks then you basically would have no PPE in the healthcare system so this has been a huge issue Cecilia can you talk a bit more about that and kind of how that fits as well with the international picture around healthcare workers' safety. Yeah, um, I love how everyone suddenly knows the acronym of personal protective equipment. Like um, I think end of last year, if you'd gone around talking about PPE, no one would know what you're talking about. Um, but, yeah, the call for PPE um, has become a rallying cry all, all around the world. Um, horror story after horror story comes out about healthcare workers being forced to work against protocol with insufficient gear 
and the infection rate and death toll amongst healthcare workers continues to climb and we're seeing that in Melbourne right now. Um, in the UK, uh, the last figure I saw, there was four, 540 healthcare workers who died as a result of contracting COVID while working. Um, and reports have also come out uh, that nurses in the US have been bullied into continuing to work after testing positive. And some of them who've um, spoken out about the lack of PPE have been fired. Uh, and now after being nursed back to health uh, within the NHS ICU, um, uh, Boris Johnson is keeping healthcare workers out of a public sector pay rise. Um, there's plenty of examples of insufficient PPE in places like the UK and the US, uh, but even in Australia, um, during the initial wave of the virus, um, there was example of similar things happening. Uh, a story that I know of from a Canberra private hospital um, uh, during the first wave prior to all the private hospitals effectively being shut down was that staff were being told um, that they needed to not only reuse a single-use uh, mask, but they were given a snap lock bag to carry it around in for the rest of the day. And I've heard similar stories in Melbourne as well um, within the public system. Um, and the fact that PPE has been rationed and in some cases locked up with the morphine is because um, there's been a massive global demand for the stuff with different countries buying out stock from underneath each other. This is basic equipment that can mean life or death for workers, um, but also the barrier that can prevent further outbreaks. Um, and it's become a key source of profit and competition, similar to testing kits. But I think it's also worth mentioning that there's been some countries like Taiwan where there's been zero or very low infection rates amongst healthcare workers and that's been due to high-grade PPE being provided to all workers from the beginning. And in Australia, we've seen recommend recommendations change, not just as the virus took hold but also as, as different uh, quantities of PPE have become available. Even now, different public hospitals uh, have different standards um, around who and when different workers have access to different levels of PPE. In the aged care sector, for example, masks only became compulsory on the 13th of July um, and it was too late um, for, you know, the virus just raging through our aged care sector. You compare that with a, with a place like Hong Kong, all aged care workers were wearing masks from January and despite being so close to China, Hong Kong has recorded zero deaths within the aged care facilities. Yeah, it's, sta it's staggering. I mean, even my experience um, 26 days ago when my baby Leo was born in the Mercy Hospital on the 10th of July was the first day that they were told that wearing masks was compulsory as healthcare workers in a hospital in Melbourne 26 days ago um, and now we're in stage four so and even then there was, it was pretty sort of confused picture about um, whether that that was really a serious thing where the masks were kept all of this kind of questions uh, so far in to this um, pandemic so yeah it's pretty staggering and your perspective from working in hospitals, um, like the preparation behind the scenes for hospitals, and again, I, I was asking questions as we were going through our kind of prenatal appointments, um, just kind of 
chatting to the healthcare workers, uh, the pediatric staff, and just saying, oh, what, what's been going on in terms of planning behind the scenes? Because it, this could be, you know, huge. This is when we were looking at pictures of Italy, um, ICU beds no longer available, making a choice between person A and person B who was going to live and die. That this was really, you know, very likely to be happening here. So what's your kind of inside view on how hosp- how prepared hospitals have been in Australia? Well, I think it's been, yeah. I mean, there's the example of um, Bernie in Tasmania where we saw the biggest hospital cluster uh in the first wave that resulted um, in the two hospitals that serviced the entire region being shut down. Uh, And official memos from management that were leaked um, uh, sent out explicitly before the outbreak directed all staff that they needed to reuse their single-use P2 masks because there simply wasn't enough. Uh, At the same time, reports uh, from within the hospitals was that Uh, General wards were being stripped of hand sanitizer and wipes in order to ensure um, that there was appropriate supply within their emergency and ICU department. So it sort of relates back to what um, uh, Eric was saying about, um, you know, there being no slack in the system and then, um, you know, just these uh, cuts that need to be be made in order to um, respond to the crisis. Um, Yeah, so... Hospitals in Australia have had time to prepare uh, and have done so in different ways. While the government did not use its time effectively prior to the first COVID-positive case to stock up on appropriate PPE gear or testing kits, in Melbourne at least, we've now got an increased capacity for ICU beds and ventilators. Um, Initially, Australia was seen as one of the world's success stories, but now that we're in the grip of the second, much more deadly wave, it's obvious that all the decisions... um, that have been made to protect our health system have been done within the context of capitalism. How can we avoid the horrific scenes that we've seen in New York, New York, Texas and London while also not trying to impact on the bottom line too much? How can we see... Um, how can um, we see... We can see that, sorry, uh, with decisions around school closures and construction sites. Um but that's also been central to decisions um, made in um, made in healthcare, um, as they always are. During the first wave, we saw a, a hospital cluster in Melbourne at a private psychiatric hospital, and this occurred because management there refused to take any preventative steps. They refused to allow telehealth appointments, and their staff uh, were forced to continue their group therapy programs. A number of staff. Um, that were uncomfortable with management's approach had to resort to taking leave um, before the shit actually hit the fan. Yeah, I mean, uh, hospital management, um, I don't know, Eric, if you wanted to say anything about your experience of hospital management cost-cutting. Yeah, well, I mean, cost-cutting is basically what they do. Um, You know, anywhere they can find savings, they find savings. And I think part of the thing with it's like when they build a new hospital, they kind of deliberately make it so that it's going to be at capacity from day one because they know that we're going to deal with it. They know we're going to do the work. They know that we're going to do the overtime. We're going to do and where, you know, the unions aren't going to really 
kick up a stink. So the whole nature of the healthcare system is just pushing the workers to see how much they can work before they break. And like, we haven't reached that breaking point yet. But this pandemic might get us close. Um, When I was working at the Royal Melbourne at the time and um, so they were trying to get us ready for the Ebola outbreak. And basically, you know, Ebola is highly contagious with touch, um, very, very deadly disease. And basically, they, they didn't even want to invest in a full body suits. They just kind of had us put together bits and pieces like glove here, um, gown here, eye goggles here, when what we actually needed was full body containment suits that would protect us from this virus. Um, you know, it's, it's this sort of thing. And we were having staff meetings at the time and getting really annoyed about it because of how incredibly deadly this virus is. Um, but, you know, it's this kind of thing that that we're dealing with. Like the hospital will try to save money because they know that people on the, the workers on, on, on mass really um, will just do the work. And that's, that's something that needs to change. And it's something that has been changing in other parts of the world um, because of coronavirus. People have been starting to kick up a stink um, and organise around it. Um, And I think that that's hopefully something that will start to change in Australia as well. Um, You know, it really takes us organising and fighting back and kicking up a stink for management to take our health seriously um, and start investing in real PPE. Yeah. Our comrades across the world. I mean, and that relates, Cecilia, to the kind of funding model that we have for hospitals in terms of um, patients and that kind of lean production model, which sounds very brutally neoliberal, but that is the reality, right? Well, yeah, healthcare under capitalism is brutally neoliberal. Um, you know, if, uh, hospitals are funded directly um, uh, to bodies in beds and throughput. Um, so every department has uh, a target in terms of how quickly they need to get uh, people in and out Um, and uh, if they don't meet those targets they're they're penalized they're um, like so if so basically if the hospital doesn't have capacity to meet the need then resources are taken off them in the form of financial um, penalties uh, and that's why um, you know and I think in terms of lean production of healthcare it makes so much sense uh, in terms of because it's all about allowing for efficiency and in and out administration um, you know and there was great pressure um, following the initial wave in in Victoria and in Melbourne, uh, to return to business as usual because, um, you know, I think partly too because like ordinary people were trying to do the right thing and they were, when they, you know, they were trying to avoid um, like the healthcare system as much as they could, um, which, you know, I think also um, resulted in people 
not seeking healthcare for really important things like, mm. um, you know, strokes or or um, heart attacks. And you know, I've I've heard reports that cancer diagnoses this year, um, depending on the disease, are down twenty to thirty percent, uh, which is really scary in terms of what what those um, ongoing health uh, issues are going to be post pandemic. Um, but there was great pressure to return to um, uh, business as usual prior to the second wave because hospital beds were empty and that was impacting on the bottom line. So it wasn't just small business owners and uh, people at home with small children. It was hospital administrators wanting getting back, wanting um, to return to normal um, so they could return their bottom lines to normal. Mm. I mean, it's that same logic in... Uh, in other public services that have been privatised, basically, um, like transport, where everything is target-based, um, financially incentivised or penalised, and therefore you kind of, you know, if you're not making the train get to the station in time, you just don't stop at the station anymore. It's that kind of same logic, but it's healthcare, so it's people's bodies and lives on the line. I mean, it, it, it's incredible, yeah. And I think that as well, like, because hospitals have been run on this cost-saving <clears throat> basis um, and, like, each ward gets pitted against each other, you know, like there's a competition, there's different, like, micromanagers on every kind of floor. And so all of a sudden we're faced with a situation where the whole hospital has to work as one, has to work together. That as well is a shift, like, um, because hospitals aren't run like that. They're kind of run competitively the wards compete against each other see which ones can save more money which ones are more efficient um so even on like this kind of micro level you have so many problems and so many barriers in terms of dealing with something like a pandemic um because the staff and the management just aren't trained at kind of like mobilizing resources in a central manner and kind of um you know trying to trying to mobilize everything against one one goal because it is just so micromanaged and that's another that's another massive problem as well um and yeah that that's something that i think they're having a bit of difficulty uh trying to overcome um mm. because they're they're not able to staff their wards properly um and they're they're not very easily able to transfer staff across from different hospitals um to different workplaces and that's causing all sorts of um, problems now with staffing. Um, yeah. And that's just going to increase as more and more healthcare workers get infected and more and more like there's, you know, the impact on staffing across the healthcare system um, grows and yeah. grows, which is what's happening in Melbourne at the moment. And we've only really had time to talk about the sort of primary end of healthcare, but actually reports coming out today about the absolute drastic underfunding and gutting of public health and sort of primary health prevention in Victoria in particular has the lowest per capita spending on public health and prevention. And this is something that um, the chief medical officer here has been campaigning about for months and months, years, in fact, to say that we don't have the public health infrastructure to deal with um, a situation like this and now here it is and it, we clearly don't. You know, there are 
they've got the army coming in, um, door knocking people who are not public health trained. They've got people who are third year paramedic students doing contact tracing and, and doing public health work. So, you know, all of that workforce, if you were in a fully funded public healthcare system, um, in any other conditions, that is not capitalism, it's not neoliberal capitalism at that. Um, there's so much more you can, it, it doesn't take any imagination really to think about how this could be handled differently. Um, but I do want to just move on to talking about kind of the response of workers because we have two healthcare workers here and that has been, I think, one of the inspiring sides of this picture is that healthcare workers have not just accepted um, this situation. What are some of the examples that you've heard of about healthcare workers' responses um, in Australia but also internationally? Look, I think there's been some really inspiring examples uh, coming out um, all over the all over the globe, you know, um, uh, uh, in response to the pandemic. Um, one of uh, the most powerful ones for me uh, was the nurses in Denver who were actually um, blockading uh, the far-right protests who uh, were demanding uh, businesses be reopened and they were using their, their moral authority um, as nurses and healthcare workers um, to um, blockade uh, these, you know, right-wing lunatics who were demanding that um, businesses be reopened in, in the middle of, of a pandemic. And that was a couple of months ago um, and things have gotten a lot worse um, in the UK. But also recently there's been um, mobilisations and protests um, in the, yeah, uh, in response to uh, the Tories saying that uh, NHS workers, um, you know, the people responsible for the Prime Minister still being alive uh, will not be receiving uh, a pay rise as part of uh, the uh, pay negotiations uh, this year. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, like there's, it, you know, it kind of relates to some of my other favourite examples sort of outside of um, COVID times of, of healthcare workers fighting back um, uh, because, you know, which are some of my favourite examples are like the junior doctor strike in the UK in, in 2016 and, you know, of course, uh, I don't think you can talk about healthcare in Victoria without talking about the nurses' strike um, in 86. Um because both of those times, even though the doctor strike, uh, the junior doctor strike ended in defeat, um, you know, these healthcare workers had to overcome not just the standard arguments that workers must overcome um, when becoming militant, but also the, all the internalised garbage um, that they must, you know, sacrifice their working conditions, their safety and their dignity uh, to make up for the years atta of attacks against our healthcare system. You know, I think it's so, you know, poetic, uh, if you will, that, you know, the NHS staff are out on the streets in the UK, um, you know, after Boris Johnson would come out, you know, when he wasn't in ICU, come out on his uh, doorstep and, and clap for the NHS workers and then he's denying, um, you know, them the dignity of a pay rise. Uh, and it's, you know, this, ideo this ideology that... Um, give healthcare workers real moral authority um, and they can use that to gain broader support amongst other workers um, but and also take a political stand like we saw the nurses in Denver. 
Um, and I think that's why healthcare workers have such potential to be so powerful because their working conditions are our living conditions. And they have the potential to be a real lightning rod um, and radicalise a broader layer of people um, about the state of the world um, more broadly. Um, so when they move, they can inspire a much broader struggle for a better world. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've seen that historically and that's really um, the kind of glimmer of light, I think, in the situation regarding healthcare and healthcare workers that people just know now, especially in Melbourne, I mean, the number of people who are putting their bodies on the line, um, that if these people were to turn around and say, look, we can't work in these conditions and this is these are our demands, that it would be very hard for anyone really to turn around and say, no, you should just keep doing this. I mean, and you could apply the same thing exactly to people who work in aged care, for fuck's sake, like, why would anybody work in aged care under these conditions at the moment with these bloody corporate monsters who drive around in their fucking Maseratis while feeding old people basically gruel and making money off the back of them and now leaving them to just die in their beds, basically walked away. And then these migrant, um, you know, contract workers left carrying the can for the whole thing and, and contracting COVID themselves. Like, for fuck's sake, if this is not an indictment of the entire system of capitalism, I mean, you have to have a bloody heart that's not functioning like a human being, really, frankly. So, I mean, all of this <laughs> is entirely infuriating. We've lost Eric because <laughs> the internet is so fucking bad in this country. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, but we've still got Cecilia. So can you end us on, on a positive note here? Um, well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you were talking about oh, well, two things, really. I mean, you know, you were talking about um, uh, the, like, the lack of, of, of funding for um, just broader public health infrastructure and how bad it is um, in Victoria in particular. Um, and I think... You know, it's sort of quite contradictory because it's like if you funded like preventative public health better, it would actually be more cost efficient for the system as a whole. Um, but, you know, I think part of that is about lowering people's expectations about what to expect around decent health care. But at the same time, I think one of the challenges um, for ruling classes in places like Australia and the UK um, is that uh, people still have expectations around healthcare here. So when they try and attack, um, uh, uh, when they try and attack it and they try and cut costs, um, you know, we can see that with the the uh, co-payment that they tried to introduce for, for GPs. People have an expectation um, that they're still entitled to decent health care. Um, so I think that's one thing in our favour, even if we still have a lot to, of work to do. Um, but, I mean, just finally, I think um, that attacks on health care are not just about the impacts it has on everyone. Um, it, it's also specifically um, what it means in terms of the working conditions for healthcare workers. And, you know, therein lies the potential. Absolutely. And as revolutionary socialists, of course, we know that if workers withdraw their labour in particular, not just um, in a financial capacity, as as you would in a kind of more, well, it is a corporate industry, but 
um, to perform social functions, then you know the system also grinds to a halt because it's workers who provide the care that people need to survive in society. And those workers are workers too, whether or not they enjoy their jobs or feel morally um, obliged to carry out them in a particular way, they still have that same potential to take action to really stop the system and point it in a different direction. And thank you for joining us to talk about doing that in healthcare tonight. Cecilia and Eric, um, good luck on your travels. And um, we'll speak to you all again next time. This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. Thank you.